You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1988, and whether you're a finger man or a finger woman, it's time to calculate mathematical success. The movie, Stand and Deliver. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are building our ultimate 100 best movie list uh last week we started off with mean girls we are in the middle of a mini series right now called back to school uh and one slot is still left open uh what would you like to see on this podcast make sure you tweeted us at hashtag back to unspooled to fill the last spot of this Back to school miniseries. Uh, and Amy, we have a great episode today. Some like a little bit of an outlier. I think this is like a, a bit of a forgotten classic here. Yeah, I mean, classic is right. I think I've watched this film 9,000 times. This is one of the films of my childhood, and I cannot wait to get into it. Well, uh, let's just do exactly that. The year is 1988. Prozac, laser eye surgery, and crack make their grand debuts in America. After eight years and 1.5 million deaths, the Iran-Iraq war officially ends. The world's first computer virus, called the Morris Worm, confounds tech heads. And during the Winter Olympics in Calgary, the world meets and falls in love with Jamaica's national bobsled team. Their story inspired a little film called Cool Runnings five years later, which should be on this show. The cool kids are listening to Enya, Kylie Minogue, U2, Michael Jackson, Gloria Estefan, Guns N' Roses, Chicago, and George Michael. And 1988 was a killer year for films. We're talking Rain Man, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Big, Twins, Die Hard, Beetlejuice, Coming to America, and today's film, Stand and Deliver. Let's take a listen to a clip. You're going to let these burros laugh at you. Minus two plus two equals. I'll break your neck like a toothpick. Orale. Zero. Zero. You're right. Simple. 
That's it. Minus two plus two equals zero. He just filled the hole. Did you know that neither the Greeks nor the Romans were capable of using the concept of zero? It was your ancestors, the Mayas, who first contemplated the zero, the absence of value. True story. You burros have math in your blood. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Stand and deliver. It is the true story of Jaime Escalante. He was a Bolivian math whiz, teacher extraordinaire, who when he showed up to teach computers to the students here in Los Angeles at Garfield High School, found out there were no computers. So he said, you know what? I'm going to teach these kids advanced calculus and they are going to pass the advanced placement exam. Nobody thought he could do it. The students don't even really seem like he can do it. But with hard work, he does it. The cast is headed by Edward James Olmos as Jaime Escalante, and the cast is an awesome ensemble of young actors playing his students. Paramount among them, Lou Diamond Phillips, who's becoming a major superstar. He plays Angel Guzman. Um, Andy Garcia is also in here as a person who casts a side eye at the test results, and there is a big showdown about it. The film is directed by Ramon Menendez, who also co-wrote the script with Tom Muska. And I gotta say, if we're gonna take that and rewind it back, if you were driving to the theaters on March 11th, 1988, when Stand and Deliver was opening, you know, the Billboard charts confirmed that it was a weekend of passionate men promising people their full commitment. Because while Jaime Escalante was standing in front of his students promising to take them all the way to a passing grade on the advanced placement exam, a man called Rick Astley was making this promise to all of us. Amy, I cannot believe that you waited until season two when I got so comfortable with you to rickroll me. But I that believe that was not a rickroll. That was legitimate. And that this is this is not a rickroll. If it was really, <laughs> really the song at the number one part of the chart. No, I know, one, I know, Rick but Astley. I still feel he tricked. He earned that. <laughs> but Jaime Escalante, it's true. He is never going to let his students down. He is never going to turn around and desert them. You know, Amy, we were talking at the top of the show about how this movie affected us both. I remember owning this movie on VHS. Like I bought it from Blockbuster used. And as a kid, I didn't understand culturally uh, what I was doing, but I would dress like Lou Diamond Phillips, like just button the top button of uh, a button down and wear a white shirt underneath. I thought he dressed so cool, not quite understanding, like I said, what that was so yes i was definitely culturally appropriating but uh but it was such a exciting film to me so i was so excited to revisit it i mean what was your history with the film yeah same i mean you know i grew up with a mother who doesn't really love cinema but stand and deliver was one of the movies that was just major for her and in my house and my mother was um she was an educational psychologist, which means that she uh, teaches teachers how to teach or she learned how people learn. And one of her jobs was she wrote the SAT. So she was really passionate about the subject wow. of like standardized testing and how can we try to level the playing field for all students in America. And this film, I, I think Jaime Escalante was a hero of hers and she watched it so much that he is absolutely a hero of mine. And just I thought the students were so cool. I thought everything about it was cool. I even I even thought yeah. that was kind of cool. No, absolutely. I think what I like about this film uh, right off the bat is it doesn't fall into the trappings of what I think we associate with the miracle teacher who comes in and shapes up these kids. 
he's flawed, the kids are flawed, but they're not overly flawed. He's not an, a giant savior. And while this movie covers a lot of ground, it's also like very patient. I feel like this movie is, you know, for a biopic, not incredibly sensational. And that's what I think really brings me into it. It feels just like this portrait of a of a moment in this school. And it's obviously collapsed and the students aren't based on real characters except for one, uh, which we'll get into. But there is something so refreshing about it. That's what the one thing I really am taking away from rewatching it is like, wow, it really is doing something very interesting that no one else has been doing in this space. Yeah, I think the movie, it's it's delivered to the audience, mimics a lot of Jaime Escalante's actual teaching style. You know, he wasn't a pandering, patronizing kind of teacher. He wasn't trying to be cool. He wasn't like, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to make a rap about a parabola and you're all going to think I'm dope and you're going to put me on their <laughs> sh- your shoulders and I'm the hero of the school. In fact, you know, Edward James Olmos, who played the role, he said that a lot of the secret he found in how to play Jaime was making sure that that character was a little bit ridiculous. When I went to study the man, I, f- I found it extraordinary that this man had had success where others had failed. Um, there's been a lot of good teachers at Garfield High School. Uh, why did this man all of a sudden break through and what was it about his behavior that allowed him to break through and why didn't the students rebel? You know, why don't they continue to rebel? He's in the, one of the hardest neighborhoods in the, in the state of California and in the city of Los Angeles. Um, I found that it was because of the way he looked, he was not threatening. Uh, had I played the character like I am right now and had done the same scenes, they would have been unbelievable. You you would have said, well, these kids, why didn't they just stand up and hit this guy? You know, or why didn't they just stand up and walk out or just not listen to him, just turn off even more? Because a lot of the scenes, he cudgels them to a point of where it's actually an affront to their behavior. He mimics their behavior. And, uh, but because of the, the way he his weight was, because of the way his hair was, the, he was not a threat to them. So they kind of could laugh at him. And that became a very big point in in playing him. I had to gain 40 pounds. I had to um, thin my hair out. Uh, I had to not look like I look right now because it would not have worked. Wow, he really articulates something that I was thinking about last night, what I was just talking about, that we are kind of preconditioned to the savior comes into this world and teaches kids and gets them so riled up, but they're always cool. And this is an uncool teacher. I mean, and when you could talk about that in movies like, uh, you know, I think it was called like The Principal with James Belushi, or you could talk about it as, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman in uh, Lean on Me. Like they're always tough and cool and they take control. And, and this person took control by quietness and by low status. I mean, he's a low status character who is incredibly and profoundly engaging to these students. And I think that's the difference. That's what makes this film so incredibly unique. Yeah, I mean, his teaching style, he he found this real sweet swap between he's not trying to be one of them. He is very clearly the teacher at all times. He's not trying to prove that he's cool. But he also says funny outrageous things that I think you could teacher couldn't really say things that get them to stand up a little bit straighter and say like, did he say that? I mean, he is really not, not only does he try to teach math using gigolo examples he does it when the principal comes in that makes him almost align with them as the rebel who's saying things that you're not supposed to be saying and yet he's still a big dork you think you're gonna do it one is x carlos is y pedro is x plus y 
Is Pedro bisexual or what? <laughs> I have a terrible feeling about you. Yeah. 5X equals Juan's girlfriends? You're good now, but you're gonna end up barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. <laughs> Can you get negative girlfriends? No, just negative boyfriends. Please forgive them, for they know not what they do. Carlos has X minus five girlfriends, que no. Que no is right, que no. The answer to my prayers. May I go to the restroom, please? <laughs> In 10 minutes, hold it. Senor Maya, hit it. It's a trick problem, Mr. Kimo. You can't solve it unless you know how many girlfriends they have in common. Right? It's not that they're stupid. It's just they don't know anything. I'm wrong? X equals Pedro's girlfriends. Five X equals Juan's girlfriends. X minus one equals Carlos's girlfriends. X plus five X plus X minus one equals 20. So X equals three. No, I mean, he's making jokes about sex with the kids. And I think that, again, is what's so refreshing. And I believe the reason why we're seeing this character portrayed this way is because it's not through the voice of a Hollywood screenwriter. Edward James Olmos and uh, Jaime Escalante worked together on the dialogue. Like, Edward brought him in and said, what would you say in this moment? And really, not improvised, but captured exactly his style of teaching. And it wasn't a writer trying to capture the spirit of him because you could see this movie through the lens of someone else, right? But Jaime was there on set so much so that the end of the the film and when he saw it, he said, look, that's 90% real, 10% drama. The climactic scene where he confronts Andy Garcia, Jaime's like, that's 100% exactly what I said. And I love that because it's not a giant monologue. It's not in front of a crowd of millions. It's in a closed door space. And it's intense, but not um, overly heroic. And, and I know I keep on coming back to this again and again, but he is a flawed character too. He's not necessarily the best dad or husband. He is not taking care of himself. He is, uh, he's, he's flawed. And that's a good way to show him. And, and not flawed like Superman flawed. Like he's flawed like just... Just a regular guy. Yeah, I mean, usually from when I talk to actors who've played like characters that are real people, they'll often say things like, I've never met them or I met them once or I didn't want to meet them. I mean, Edward James almost says that he lived with Jaime Escalante for a month. And honestly, as an, I can't even imagine not, not wanting to be an actor at all. I can't imagine the, the stage fright I would assume an actor would feel playing a character when that character is on set watching you. Oh, Amy. I mean, that seems like a nightmare. I mean, I also will say, you know that Edward James almost, I love uh, Edward James almost, but that guy can choose scenery like no other. Any fan of Battlestar Galactica will tell you. First of all, I think they are a, a pair because whenever you see Edward James almost like improvising or doing something, like one of his episodes of Battlestar that he directed was so hypersexualized. It was like, oh, this is clearly Edward James almost. Like, this is his influence on this. He is. I think someone who likes to get into the body of a character and you every moment, like, I mean, I don't want to say that he was schmacting because he definitely was nominated for many awards. This was nominated across the board at independent spirit awards. He was nominated uh, for an Academy award and all deservingly. So, but he is 
waddling around, hands in the front of the pocket. I mean, he's using everything. I mean, it is, if it wasn't a true person, you would think it is a supreme character. I mean, it is a full-bodied performance. And I don't mean that negatively, but I really was sitting back like, wow, these are choices. Like, he is going for it. I mean, it, it, the, you know, everything, every part of his being is, is being used here. He is. And that's what I love about it is that like this was a time too when he was known as being, you know, a sexy guy on Miami Vice. You know, right. in that clip we heard, you he kept hearing me like, if I looked like I do now, if I looked like I do now, it's because at that moment, you know, he was the incredibly handsome, sexy guy. And so to see him like this, this is how I first ever, ever knew Edward James almost. This is my Edward James right. almost. I don't know if that would horrify him or not, but this is this is when I think of him, this is how I picture him still, which is crazy. No, but when but, you showed that clip of him talking about the film and he looked the way he looked in 1988, I was like, oh, shit, he was an attractive, you know, like really, I mean, not intimidating. He just was like, he was a sexy man, like, you know, and he really has transformed. But I, I'm in your camp until I just saw that I had like a, an emotion like, oh, boy. Oh, wow. That movie really got me. I, <laughs> I just assume he was like that. Yeah, I mean, with all of the prep that Edward James almost did, you know, the hours of going to his classrooms, the hours of listening to his voice on tape, the weight gain that he did, which was really hard on him because he comes from a family that's prone to diabetes. So like the gain over 40 pounds was really rough and he was still under contract to Miami Vice, so he had to be losing it. I mean, honestly... I feel like his commitment to this role is is the sort of thing that like we give De Niro all the credit for. Like yes. he did that too. Like this is a role where he made that happen. He got so in tune with with um, Jaime Escalante that I think he helped rewrite a lot of the script and action. And also when Jaime Escalante was there on set, like he would come over to Edward James almost and he would whisper in his ear, he's like, listen, if you need the people to pay attention to you this way, this is actually, well, actually what you say. This is how you do it. He was just this a uh, master psychologist, I think Jaime Escalante was. And I feel like where the two men really connected is that both of them have this core sense of what is the right choice to make. You know, Jaime Escalante's story, he was a teacher back when he was in Bolivia. And when he came to America in 1964, he was told that none of his teaching credits counted. His his teaching certificate didn't count. And not only that, but none of his undergraduate credits counted from when he was a student in Bolivia. Wow. So he had to work here in America as a busboy and as a waiter and retake college in America to become a teacher again. He even had to take P.E. again, but he did it. He went through all of that, got a second college degree just so he could teach in America and then committed even after Stand and Deliver to staying at Garfield High School to making, you know, I think it was around thirty five thousand dollars a year to living the life that he thought was right for him. And, and Edward James almost talks about the same thing with his approach to Hollywood. You know, he was a guy who I think was very aware of what roles he would and wouldn't take. He turned down being in Scarface because he didn't think that that was a role that he felt represented Latino Americans. He even turned down Miami Vice four times until they convinced him to say yes. He was really aware of what he wanted to portray on film. And then he wins the Emmy for Miami Vice. And then he uses his Emmy card to be Jaime Escalante. I think you're talking about a bunch of things here uh, that I want to kind of dive into. And I think at the core of it all is the truthfulness of the performances and and the voices behind the camera and in front of the camera really being on the same page, right? You have Ramon Menendez from Cuba, this director, who's directing this story and really wants to make sure that it doesn't feel like a Hollywood film. And the way he goes about that is a little bit crazy. Um, he wanted to cast real kids from high school. I, I'll play a clip uh, from the casting director talking about 
how he struggled with finding the perfect cast. The most interesting part about this process was we got hired on the premise that we would be willing to go into the barrio and look for unknowns. And I said, you mean the barrio high schools? Because that's what we need? He said, yes. Okay. So we agreed so that we got the job, right? So then I, I had to go set up uh, meetings with teachers and high schools in East LA to go find real kids because that's what our passionate director wanted. And she talks about how that process actually backfired because they're high school kids, they're not actors. And what she brought to Ramon was she said, let me cast actors that don't ever get a chance to play opposite the type of the gang leader or this, you know, ne'er-do-well that they're often being put in the roles of. And that's how they got this cast. Like everyone in this cast, this was a chance for them to kind of expand who they were and how they were seen in the Hollywood community. So what when you're talking about Edward James almost using his Emmy card, he not only uses his Emmy card, but opens the door for so many different voices here. And I think that's because the director while maybe a little bit off point in the beginning to just cast high school kids, you know, really wanted the film to feel real and and not manufactured and not Hollywood. And so when you have like a Cuban voice, uh, a Latino voice, uh, a Filipino and Native American voice, all as like your centerpieces of this film, you're getting, you know, they all have power. So you're actually getting a whole different perspective. Yeah, and you're helping make... Lou Diamond Phillips into a major movie star. We're going to be talking to him about that, about all of this, and later on in this episode. But what I love about it is, I was just realizing as we're talking, you, know, you were talking about this movie having an indie feel, which it did. None of the major studios wanted to make this film, so they had to make it on their own, really low budget. And then when it finally played at a festival, Warner Brothers was like, oh, we'll buy that. We can see some potential here in this movie. So they couldn't use any studios to get it made. I was realizing, I think Stand and Deliver might be my personal introduction to indie film. Yes, I, I think I, this I agree. is the first indie film I ever saw, even though it was distributed by Warner Brothers. Well, when I was looking on IMDb and I saw that like, it really swept the nominations of the Indie Spirit Awards, I was like, wait, I've always saw this as a big Hollywood film. Uh, and that kind of blew my mind. But I think that independence is what we're reacting to. It's not yeah. manufactured. Yeah, it, it really. And it's so young into our own, like our own generation's independence movement. You know, I mean, I think they, it was the fourth annual Independent Spirit Awards. It only been wow. happening for four years when this movie comes out and it wins. It wins best feature. It wins director. It wins male lead. Lou Diamond Phillips wins supporting male lead. Um, it wins supporting female and it wins screenplay. And I will admit it did sweep another movie that I adore very much. I guess I also never really thought of as an indie movie either. Hairspray. The John Waters Hairspray. Oh, wow. Hairspray. Yeah. Love that movie, and it beat it in every category. Well, there's but, something about this time where indie films could really get the backing of a major studio. And I also think that indie films at this time were a little bit more, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, I could be totally wrong, but more commercial. Like they were like, this is, a, I think it'd be hard pressed to find an indie film right now that feels like this, right? Because it does feel like, oh, this is made for mainstream audiences, whereas Maybe back then the idea was, oh, I want to tell this story that Hollywood keeps on making, but they won't make this version of this story. So they get to make that version of it in a way like because Hairspray is also incredibly like, I mean, look, it became a Broadway musical. It's it's independent, but it also is attracting, you know, it's it's basically like, let me have this voice. Let me show this voice that is not represented. I mean, I would say when I go to the film festivals, especially Sundance, 
what I have noticed is kind of the frustrating pattern is that there's kind of a conflation between we want to find new voices and what those new voices should be saying with their new voice. It feels like young directors are told, you know, make your own personal story to show that this is a personal film from your singular voice. But honestly, a lot of people don't have really interesting lives. And so it's just a lot of coming of age stories that I find incredibly boring at Sundance every year. And it's sad yes. because they're well done and they're they're great. You know, they're well, though they're not great. They're kind of boring, but they're very well done and they have a ton of promise. And you want to see everybody's second film, but I don't, I don't want to see their first one. Well, but to me, it's like this problem of, you know, write what you know. And I think that that is a terrible thing to say because it's often taken incredibly literally, right? Write what you know, write about your people. I think it's like infuse yourself into what you're writing about, right? So you, I mean, this is a true story, so it's hard to kind of do compare and contrast, but it's sort of like, can you use your experiences, your relationships to inform the characters you're writing without them having to be a copy of your actual life? I mean, that's why to me, I, I bitch about this all the time, but it's like a lot of independent film is that mumble core. We're in a house. We're just ta- like, it's so, this is exciting. This movie is exciting. This movie is different. It Like you get emotional from it. And I, and I feel like sometimes I miss that. No, it is harder to find. And I would like it if we raise the bar a little bit for first time filmmakers, because honestly, sometimes when I go to major film festivals like Sundance, I feel a little bit like the festivals are kind of, well, being this teacher at Garfield High School. You can't teach logarithms to illiterates. Look, these kids come to us with barely a seventh grade education. Now, there isn't a teacher in this room who isn't doing everything he possibly can. I'm not. I could teach more. I'm sure Mr. Escalante has good intentions, but he's only been here a few months. Students will rise to the level of expectations in your Molina. What do you need, Mr. Escalante? Gunness. That's all we need is gunness. What's gunness? I love this teacher because I think it represents something really interesting. First of all, she's not a white woman who is saying this about these students, which I think is an interesting and, and complex idea. You know, right now, uh, my kids are in public school and I'm dealing a lot with uh, social justice and equity in public schooling if you are a parent right now, you're probably dealing with a lot of online learning and you can see that, especially in public schools, uh, you know, lower income children and minority children are kind of being left behind because of lack of access to technology, even though the computers may be given or whatever. There's always this idea of, um, you know, like schools are written off and we just expect a certain thing. And when she wants to get her school better, her idea is to bus in white students to raise up uh, to raise up their grade averages, not to it's just not believing in the students that they actually have. And I thought that was an incredibly complex character to play because she's just given up. She's bought into the system like, well, they're never going to learn. We, we just have to go through this. And I think, you know, change takes such hard work, such sacrifice, such belief. And this movie shows like Jaime Escalante is like. We're working on weekends. We're going to school in the summer. We're not stopping during Christmas break. That's what it takes. And most people want the change. Most people want these schools to be better, want these students to get what they need, but aren't willing to do that. And, you know, obviously it's a very specific thing, but 
when that one person raises, the whole school comes up. And you see that in the end title scroll. It's like the school becomes a bastion of calculus AP students, which is crazy to me. But it took all that energy and effort to do that. You have to push. It's it's a, a Sisyphean task to a certain degree. I, I, you know, so it is. A, I thought that was interesting. And I, and I think I'm sorry, I'm talking a little bit too much. But I'll say one more thing and say, like, but I also believe what I love about this movie is it doesn't play into stereotypes as much as maybe a Hollywood movie would, right? Because look, you have this woman who is the principal of a school. First of all, I love that she's a woman. I love that she's not white. Then you have these students and they don't ever really embrace the bad things that they do. Like they're not, they're not glamorizing like, you know, Lou Diamond Phillips is in a gang, right? Or, or something. We don't know exactly. Like we see him in the car hungover, tired. He's drunk at certain points, but we don't sensationalize that part of him. We sensationalize him learning, which is kind of interesting. And I think like there's an interesting tool of not um, exploiting these characters uh, across the board, which I thought was really, which you wouldn't normally get, I think, in a mainstream Hollywood movie. Yeah, I mean, I think in a mainstream Hollywood movie, like Lou Diamond Phillips's best friend would have been shot by the cops yes, and it would have exactly, been his wake yes. up call. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have it would have gone that far. And in fact, Jaime Escanta, you know, he said that he called it 10 percent hype. That 10 percent is he thought, you know, my students actually aren't even that much in gangs and they aren't even that poor. This whole right. thing has been overhyped by images, all a lot of them coming out of movies that aren't done with this much credibility. Whereas Edward James Olmos, he grew up a mile and a half away from this. His childhood home is a mile and a half away from Garfield High School. In fact, he had a cousin who was teaching computer science at Garfield, which makes him kind of like the real wow, Camonte, yeah. I guess. But and, they had and, computers. The only difference, right? Yeah, I know. If they finally got them. Even as somebody who, who you know, as, a, as I've bragged before, is on the math wall of fame at my high school. Wow, wow, wow. The idea of Garfield High School in real life giving people who are taking the calculus classes letter jackets to make them look cool sounds so insane to me and so nerdy. And yet it worked. Like if you were a first year student taking calculus with Jaime Escalante, you got like a slick little white jacket. And if you were second year, you got a red. And if you were third year, you got a blue. And he was like, yeah, all the people with blue are really cool. And that upends everything that I think even I wanted to subscribe to school in general. Yeah. Students want to be good. I think people don't want to be dumb. You know, no, I, I totally agree. I think, but it's like, it's a mix. It's like, you want to be called in, right? Not called out. And I think school for the most part, especially school in an area like that, where the teachers are essentially giving up or letting the status quo take over, you're not calling them in. You're, you're saying like, who cares? And what you're doing here is you're saying, not only do I care, but I'm going to make you important. And I'm, I'm, and you know, it, I see it with being a parent, like, when you have your iPhone out, the level of distress that you can get on your child's face because you're not get, giving them attention. I mean, and, and obviously school is the greater part of that. Like if no one cares if you're passing or failing and you just get detentions and everything is punitive, then why would you want to learn? And then, yes, I do believe that people want to learn, but I think people also need to be shown that like, I want to teach you too. Like, I'm just not here to collect the paycheck. I mean, that's with everything, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I love that idea. And I think teachers, many amazing teachers are out there doing it, but it's, it's hard to make all that room. You like to watch new stuff, right? 
Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. I think one of my favorite subtle moments in this movie is right when Jaime Escalante shows up in his classroom for the very first time. There's not even seats for everybody. And he looks around his classroom and he realizes just by what he's saying that the kids standing in the back of his classroom don't even speak English yet. You know, they're very new to this country. And instead of just letting them stand and ignoring them, he gives them the very front seats in the row of the classroom. And he makes the school nerd that everybody throws papers at, you know, move to the back. But just his refusal to shrug and say that, well, not everybody's going to get this. And what are the, what am I going to do about it? It's a small thing. And it doesn't even come up that much again. Like the, the problems with any sort of like translation inside of his classroom. It's, it doesn't become a major figure. In fact, I don't think any of those kids become major figures in the film, but that his, his care really registered with me. And I think one of the honest things about it is, you know, if we are going by that first day of classroom, not all the students stay in his class. No. You know, his teaching approach is sometimes great to watch, but it doesn't work on everybody. Like, let's play the finger man scene. I love this scene because it's really funny. He's going up to Lou Diamond Phillips, his best friend. And yet, you know, this kid doesn't become a math whiz. This kid absolutely quits. I know the ones, the twos, the threes. Finger man, I heard about you. Are you the finger man? I'm the finger man too. You know what I can do? I know how to multiply by nine. Nine times three. One, two, three. What do you got? Twenty-seven. Six times nine, one, two, three, four, five, six. What do you got? Fifty-four. Yeah. You want a hard one? How about eight times nine? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What do you got? Seventy-two. I want to talk to you. Wait a minute. Please make sure you do problems one through twenty. Page twenty-six. Can I have my book, Mr. Scalante? Don't bring it to class again, all right? I love that scene and I love that character. And this is the character we're talking about. Like he's into some shady shit. We don't know what it is. The movie doesn't really live in that, but it lives in the story of Lou Diamond Phillips kind of on the side of, of doing this shady shit uh, is gets really invested in math. And, you know, this movie takes place over two years. We cover a tremendous amount of time in this film. And like I said earlier, it's also very patient. It allows you to kind of forge these connections. The only true person in this film besides Jaime um, is the student Anna Delgado. She's kind of the the little um, the nerdier kid who has a very high voice like that. She 
actually uh, was pulled out of school by her father because her father wanted her to work at the restaurant. And that scene, uh, like I've mentioned before, like was incredibly uh, real and based on not even based, but dialogue was used that Jaime remembered having with her father at that restaurant. And it's a great scene because that girl did come back and that girl, you know, so that, that really is, she is our shining light in this movie of like, Oh, that's a real student that had real effects uh, in the real world. I mean, you know, I don't think Lou Diamond Phillips character existed. I know he didn't because Anna's the only one who did. Yeah. Well, well, actually her family's restaurant is still there. It was, you know, it was here. It was called El Farolito. It's not actually very far from me. It's on Pico by um, Dino's chicken and burgers. If you've ever. Been oh, there. wow. Yeah. And, you know, while we're talking about her and that actress, I do want to say, and this is a sad story, and I am kind of sorry for for throwing it in there, but that actress, Vanessa Marquez, as we're talking about this film representing, you know, things that happen in real life here in the city, it does feel necessary to say that Vanessa Marquez, that actress who played Anna, she was shot to death by police during a wellness check in 2018. Oh, my God. she had mental health health issues and she was really scared about being taken away by policemen. And so when they showed up at her door, she grabbed a BB gun and they just shot her uh, dead and they um, they did not face charges. Of course. Oh, man, that is. Well, I'm glad that we know that now about her as well. I mean, this is, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm most... sorry to kind of drop that in, but it felt like, you know, it felt no, like it, it was important to I mention. Think, no, I think it absolutely should be talked about i don't want to erase any actor that's been in this film um you know it's it is interesting that really the only person that kind of pops from this film is lou diamond who already was popping right because um because he was one of the first people who signed on to this movie like once he signed on that really got the engine going that they could actually make this film and it's a shame because i think all of these actors and it's such a big cast really get a chance to shine they're all really um different looking in the sense that they are not like they're not cut from i mean we just watched mean girls right and and the idea of make mean girls you see you know a version of a classroom i feel like these students felt to me like the students I went to school with, like, you know, or like their body types and the, and the way that they looked and like, they're not super nerdy. They're not, not nerdy. You know, there, there's a, a real, I don't know, just a really nice collage of what a classroom looks like. And not, I'm not saying that on race. I'm just saying it on, uh, on the way that they acted. Like they were not, none of them were incredibly stereotypical. Yeah. My favorite in here is Lupe. I love Lupe because you see Lupe, the, um, she's the the character who's kind of curvaceous with the red hair. You see her go through such a change. You know, I, I feel like I have such a bead on, on a girl like Lupe because she wants to fit in with the boys. She wants to have a boyfriend. She, you know, is a, a little bit of a, like a pleaser. She also has kind of a, a thin strapped life at home where nobody's really paying attention to her except for what she's doing to help. You know, she makes her dad's lunch. She's there and her mother comes home late at night. She's taking care of their kids. You know, she's a little bit invisible and wants to fit in. And so she has that scene where the boys are like, you know what? Let's just not take the quiz. Let's just not do it. Yeah. And she's the one who gets in trouble for it and has to sit in front of the classroom. And you see her face just realize how much fitting in isn't going to help her in the long run. You watch kind of that shame watch over her. And then you see her start to believe in herself for herself, not just like what attention she can get and how she can fit in and who she can get to like her and who who will pay attention to her, but her own value. And as she blossoms, you know, she doesn't get 
all of the character screen time is Lou Diamond Phillips. Or maybe she doesn't. It's just like you don't register it as much because she's not the movie star the way that he is. You know, Lou Diamond Phillips has a way of walking into a scene. He looks like a supermodel. You know, he stands like a supermodel. He commands attention like he's in the center of a Vogue spread. Yet watching her run around with the hose, spray people with the hose, being the person who gets that first phone call that their test scores are in jeopardy, and then being the person who's the first person to call back and say, I'm taking that test again. I love that character so much. And she is a thousand percent somebody I went to high school with. I think I went to high school with tons of Lupe's app. Yeah. There's a little bit of Lupe in me. Like, I love her. And she has, um, like, I love that story. The love story there was such a, I mean, it paid off. I mean, this movie is an hour and 42 minutes. It's not very long. And they cover a lot with each one of the characters. I think that you feel incredibly invested in them. Um, you know, it really, and, and while Lou Diamond Phillips, I think is the poster child of the movie, literally, like he's the one that takes up a majority of the frame on the poster. He's very much equally weighted amongst the other characters. I mean, I think that, you know, he's definitely the most outside of the other characters, but you know, it's, it really truly is an ensemble. Like even when he gets his passing grade at the end of the film and it's revealed that he gets the highest grade it, he gets no more pomp and circumstance than anyone else you know it's not like we did it it's like no the class did it and i think that that's really important too like celebrating this idea that the class was successful yeah i feel like i have connections to so many people in here you know the really pretty girl whose mom is like boys won't like you if you're too smart you know uh Poor, 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 poor Javier, who's like trying to decide whether or not it makes more sense just to make more money now to work on his uncle's forklift. The fact that he doesn't feel like he's as naturally smart as everybody and where is the role for him in this class? You know, that he's almost just there by luck of the draw. And can he rise to the occasion, even though he doesn't seem to have gigantic ambitions for himself until Jaime is like, don't you want to be building the car instead of just like fixing the car? And I appreciate how we get to see even the students stick up for themselves in little ways, you know, because Jaime... Likes to make a lot of jokes. He's weirdly obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor. Very weirdly obsessed about Elizabeth Taylor. But I appreciate when Claudia, uh, one of the students in the class, is able to say, you know, I don't appreciate you making jokes about me sleeping around and having boyfriends. You know, she sticks up for herself in that scene. You know, my personal life is not here to to entertain the class. And I, I was glad that was in this movie, too. You know? Totally. My research into this class being successful is interesting. I mean, if we talk about that for a second, uh, you know, we'll keep on talking about the movie, but him coming into the inner city school isn't like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer walking into Dangerous Minds. Like, he seems pretty okay with it. Yes, there are some differences. Like, his, you know, radio is stolen from his car. It's not like, oh my God, what is this? Who are these kids? Like, it, like the next scene is like he's in the chef's outfit and he's, you know, doing the Apple thing. It's like, so there's no, there's no like antagonist, which is like, you know, what a scary school. It's just sort of like, well, what, what is the story? And the story slowly becomes like, it's about taking this AP, uh, AP Calc class. And that really kind of reveals itself. And at the end, they take it, they do so well uh, that no one believes that they didn't cheat. Um, and they are forced to retake it again. Now, the whole idea of like what they cheated on and did they cheat has been an interesting, like real story. Um, have you done any of this research onto this? I have, yeah, because this, you know, we, we were talking about how this is condensed from about eight years of, of Jaime Escalante's teaching, but this was a real thing that happened when he taught this class in 1982. Yeah, so um, 10 of the students from 1982 uh, signed these waivers to allow the college board 
to show their exams to this guy, Jay Matthews. And Jay Matthews wrote this book called Escalante, The Best Teacher in America. So Matthews obviously on the side of Jaime, like not trying to, you know, uncover him. And and Jaime's numbers definitely do stand. So I just think it's this is an interesting thing. I'm not trying to undercut Jaime, but I think this is actually really fascinating. So what he found was that nine of the kids had made identical uh, mistakes on the free response question to number six. Uh, And Matthews heard from two of the students that during the exam, a piece of paper had been passed around with that flawed solution on it. 12 students, including the nine with the identical mistakes, retook the exam and most of them received four or five scores. That's the, the top two highest scores you can get. And so Matthews concluded that nine of the students did cheat on that exam, but they knew the material so well that they didn't actually need to cheat. And I thought that was so interesting because there's a line in the film where the principal says, like, are you sure they didn't cheat? They want to please you so much. They don't want to let you down that they may have cheated simply to not make you upset. Honestly, when I heard that, it made the message of this film in that these kids also just need to believe in their own abilities and that you can't underplay to them that they can't do things. It felt like it underscored that, that it was like these kids' lack of belief in themselves and the knowledge that they knew that they had. You know, it it felt like it it hammered home that principal's lecture double. Although I have to say, I kind of like Lou Diamond Phillips's explanation in the movie. I come from this neighborhood. Yo vengo de este barrio. And I know that sometimes we're tempted to take shortcuts. Just tell me the truth. What happened? Dime la verdad. Okay. We're busted. Why don't we just admit it? How'd you do it? I got the test ahead of time. I passed it out to everyone else. How did you get the test? Mailman. I strangled him. His body's decomposing in my locker. (laughs) By the way, while we're talking about copying, there is a second plagiarism scandal attached to stand in delivery. Have you heard about this? I have. (laughs) This is wild. I'm going to let Rachel Maddow explain. The Wikipedia entry for Stand and Deliver describes the main plot of the film this way. Quote, in the area of East Los Angeles, California in 1982, in an environment that values a quick fix over education and learning, Jaime Escalante is a new teacher at Garfield High School. That's Wikipedia. Here's Rand Paul. In the area of East L.A. in 1982, in an environment that values a quick fix on education over learning, Escalante was a new math teacher at Garfield High School. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. United States Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky has been caught copying full-scale paragraphs of Wikipedia for his major speeches. He did it for Stand and Deliver. He also did it for Gattaca. And since he is not here to defend himself the way Jaime Escalante would defend him, I'll let this old uh, Colbert clip do the report. Oh, oh, just because he and Wikipedia use the same words, Rand Paul is a plagiarist. 
You don't know that. Maybe Rand Paul wrote the Wikipedia entry on Gattaca. I mean, for Pete's sake, I don't know what else they do in the Senate. And how dare, how dare, Rachel Maddow, how dare you besmirch this man's good name? Rand Paul is not a plagiarist. He is the junior United States Senator for Kentucky. He is a member of the Republican Party, a graduate of the Duke University School of Medicine. Paul began practicing ophthalmology in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I mean, this is amazing. It's such a weird, I mean, I guess it just speaks to bad speech writing. All right? It's because I don't even believe that he knew that he was doing it, right? It wasn't like that Rand Paul's writing these speeches. Someone in his department is just cutting and pasting. And it it's happened all over. I mean, you mentioned the other one, but it's like, it is a problem. Like, if you go down this wormhole, you'll see that he's been attached to this multiple times. And when addressing it, he really does think it's the haters. I, what's funny is I think all of this happened in 2013, I believe. And at the time, it caused such a minor scandal that people are like, well, he can never be president now. <laughs> yep yep that that would stop you um, that would stop you but it does make me wonder if Rand paul has ever seen stand and deliver because if you have seen stand and deliver shouldn't you just be wanting to help schools more man no his lesson he learned was the cheating lesson copy other people's papers that's he took the wrong lesson away um <laughs> you know there by the way by the way speaking of tests there was a bit of a sad backhanded effect to this film's popularity when it came out because Jaime Escalante's classroom was just mobbed. Like it became this huge like camera station, traffic control. Everybody wanted to show up in his class and interview him, see how it was done. And that year, the year that Santa Deliver came out, only half of his students passed the exam. Oh, wow. And he blamed a lot of factors. He said that, you know, not only was it the fact that his classroom was such a high traffic area, but that he felt that maybe the students themselves watched Stand and Deliver too many times and got misled by the fact that it made it look even easier in the movie. Right. I mean, they really don't embrace calculus. Like the moments that they talk about it are very few and far between. It's like, it's a math problem, upside down cake. You know, uh, that's interesting. And I imagine also... You know, you probably think by osmosis, you're going to learn calc. And I, you know, as a terrible math student, uh, that is not the case. You know, we've been talking a lot about Jaime. I would love to hear him in his own words. This is um, him talking about how he teaches and, and his philosophy on teaching. My first year, it was a completely frustrated. I, I think frustration completely frustrated. I thought I did my homework. At the end, when they take the finals, the kids were weak in fraction. They were weak <laughs> in time. So, ooh, I said, mm-mm, I blew it, man. No. I have to correct my mistakes. The next year, I start emphasizing, correcting my mistakes. Desperately, I got the final test. Again, another kind of mistakes. And every year, I used to try to correct my mistakes. Believe me, I'm still making mistakes. It's difficult. There's up and down. Everybody has frustrations. We just have to learn how to deal with them. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But don't use your cool. Once you have that, ensure that that kid's going to learn. And he will remember you. You the one taught him to do this, or what is the times table, or any other thing, not just in mathematics. So you shape up the life of that kid. And don't quit. If you quit, you disintegrate yourself. I love that. I love that philosophy, too. It's not like he is some magic 
man. Like he doesn't have all the answers. He's not goodwill hunting. He, you know, he's a true teacher. Like, he, you know, he didn't just come into this and bing, bang, bong. You know, I mean, the movie, I think that's probably the most Hollywood part of it is like walks in the door, gets it all done in two years. And he's been doing this for a long time. And there's nothing there's no shame in that. It's probably just not as interesting as a Hollywood story. But thankfully, they didn't write what they knew. They made it more entertaining and made it one class in uh, two years and, and gave a dramatic twist to it. Yeah, what you're saying, you know, this film's emphasis on hard work and and the idealism of the fact that if you do do the the math, if you do literally do the math, you can accomplish things. I think that's why this film hits me so hard. I mean, this hits my same emotional button as when I watch, you know, 12 Angry Men or To Kill a Mockingbird or Rocky. This is that you can do it movie for me. This is this is the America that I want to live in. You know, I feel like all of those st- movies are looks at America that see the good and the bad and that ask how we can become a better society. This movie, I think, is right up there with that. You know, I watch this and I say, every human being has intelligence and worth. And if you let both of those things shine, if you don't try to cover them down with low expectations, and if you try to give people time to study, if you do the little things that give them, you know, a lamp when you need a lamp, when Lupe needs a lamp to have her have a lamp that she can study at night, these small things that can make this a more equitable society my heart just thrills. I mean, I feel like a giant nerd talking about it. I feel like I want to be pushing up my glasses, but this film means the world to me that way. And what it says about this country, I feel like for this country, this film is as aspirational as Jaime Escalante is for his students. Can I say something incredibly nerdy? Uh, And I think it's a little bit of the symbolism of the film. And I think what's kind of amazing about it is you open up the film on this shot of raging waters. It looks incredibly peaceful. It looks serene. Uh, it looks magical, majestic, all these things. And it pulls out and it's the LA river, right? And you see how dirty it is in the smog filled city. And it's this beautiful opening shot that I think explains everything that you want to know about this film, that there is beauty in this city, we can't write off everything. I think most of us who live in L.A. have seen the L.A. River. It's I mean, by the way, that looks like it has more water in it than I've ever seen in the last five years. But um, when you look at that, it's such a gross thing. Like, oh, it's an eyesore or whatever. And you know it from movies like Grease and stuff like that. But it's finding the, the beauty and embracing the beauty. And I think uh, especially it's important with students. And, you know, I think we see a lot of a lot of stories about. And that's in the AFI, adult men lifting themselves up and reaching their full potential. But I do feel like to have a story about someone who legitimately is finding the beauty and 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 making that, you know, it's a, a tree grows in Brooklyn kind of idea, right? Uh, it's like that idea of like trying to carve out a place for that and and make and make a change and and embrace the beauty that you may not often see. I mean it's a very long-winded way of saying I just think it was a cool uh piece of symbolism in the beginning of the movie that I think really articulates what he did. I love that. Although you did also leave out that funky opening piece. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about this. I would love 
to talk a little bit more at length about Andy Garcia, who pops up in this movie, uh, by the way, was supposed to be one of the students and talked his way out of it to become uh, the college exams uh, admissions officer. Uh, oh, I'm glad he did that. Wouldn't he look a little bit too movie star to be one of the students? I totally agree. And I think he does a great job in this movie. Again, another complicated character that both people in the college admissions program, like one is black and then you have Andy Garcia, who is, you know, uh, in the film representing himself as being uh, a Latino man. Right. Uh, which I thought was I just I love the way that this film uh, without being like, hey, look at us. Like, you know, they're just it's just very subtly in there. There's no like, um, you know, it's embracing race and equity and talking about it, not just from a black and white standpoint. It's almost approaching it also from a class standpoint, an economic standpoint. And I think that's often kind of missed as part of the narrative as well. Uh, not to say that it doesn't exist within. I'm just saying it just it it just further goes to show you how well thought out the casting was in this movie. Yeah, I want to play that clip um, that's really the big showdown between Andy Garcia Ooh, and, and Edward James Olmos. I cheered in this moment. I love that moment because you hear that moment where something in Andy Garcia just breaks. And it's like you get this whole insight into his life and everything he's worked to accomplish and that he is now being accused of being the system. Yes. And, I mean, because Andy Garcia. And you get this whole story just in his voice. Andy Garcia is essentially Edward James almost. He grew up or in the film. He's saying, I grew up down the block from this school. This is my like, you know, and I love it. I mean, it's such a great. Uh, yeah. Those scores would have never been questioned if my kids did not have Spanish surnames and come from barrio schools. You know that. All right. We've been patiently explaining our positioning and listening to your complaints. But now our conversation is over. There's something going on here that nobody is talking about. And you know what it is. No one has the right to accuse me of racism. No one has the right to accuse me of racism. I know well how to spell discrimination. I thought this was over a long time ago. Are you doing this to my kids? There are two kinds of racism, Mr. Escalante. Singling out a group because they're members of a minority and not singling out a group because they're members of a minority. My kids could teach you a thing or two, Johnny. I'm going to call security if you can't control yourself, Escalante. Go for it. You didn't show me the test. You didn't prove anything. My kids didn't do anything. I'm going to prove you guys wrong. I hope you do. Because it's not between you and me. He does a lot with that. His limited amount of work in it. He does, I mean, little choices. And I think everyone's kind of pushing here a little bit. Like, there's a moment where they're going into the principal's, like, uh, safe, that giant locker. And he just kind of turns to the principal. like, don't worry, this doesn't affect you. And, you know, he's got, like, he he pulls me in. And I don't, like... He pulled me in and he's doing something there that I think is really, uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed. I enjoyed what he did, but he definitely is making the most of that small part. You know, and Amy, I know we're getting away from the AFI list, um, but I do think it's worth mentioning that in December of 2011, Stin and Deliver was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress. And it was recognized by the AFI in the 2006 list, which was the... Uh, 100 years, 100 cheers. By the way, while we're talking about the awards that you know, I deeply believe that Stand and Deliver rightly deserved, I want to point out, you know, Stand and Deliver 
it not only gets nominated for Best Screenplay at the Independent Spirit Awards, it wins Best Screenplay. And I have to say, I'm kind of annoyed that this screenplay, which I really do admire, you know, by Ramon Menendez and Tom Muska, it doesn't even get an Oscar nomination. I, I feel like it deserved that. Yeah. And I think if you look at a lot of press, Edward James almost is often taking a lot of credit for the rewriting of the script. And we've talked about that here in this episode. But, you know, if you look at the original script of this film, you know, the bones are 100 percent there. And I think that on anything, when you play a character this big and there's a full collaboration and everyone's bringing so much of themselves to the part, you know, I think those lines get muddy for the individual players. But uh, it's really worth shouting out in this script because that is what got this movie made and what got everybody who is attached on board. Me too. I mean, I'll be nervous. I was worried when I rewatched this because I haven't rewatched it in a very long time that you know, as an older, more cynical adult, you know, as a person who's tried to learn even more in the last decade since I was a child, I would look at this film and find it kind of embarrassing or maybe that it would yes. be that inspirational movie that I that I was afraid it might be, that it would be too threadbare, too condescending, that it would be simplistic. And it seemed richer and just as modern today as as it ever was. You know, and I I'm glad to be talking about this film because you're right, I think it should get talked about more. And I'm I'm glad to see how much attention it got at the time. I'm glad that Edward James almost became the first Mexican-American actor to receive a Best Actor Academy Award nomination for this. You know, I'm glad that it was recognized at the time as a major thing. I mean, I think there was this moment in 1988 where there was a hope that we were going to see a huge rise of films made in the indie market and the studios by Latinos with Latino actors telling just Latino stories like this, you know, that are for, you know, everybody, that they're not trying to make siloed films, you know, in the corner. I think that was about to happen. You know, Obama had been such a huge crossover hit. This was a huge crossover hit. You know, Devin's mom was obsessed with it, too. People's moms love this movie. Kids love this movie. Every kid has seen this movie, I think, in school. Maybe that happened to happen for me as well. And, and you have other movies coming at the time, you know, Malaga Beanfield War. Jane Fonda was in a movie called The Old uh, the, the Old Gringo. There was Zoot Suit. You know, there was um, Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. There was a moment where I think there was a real potential rise of an indie Latino movie that didn't pan out. You know, yeah. And so I feel that stirring of hope when I watch this movie of that moment of like, yeah, it felt like this was going to happen and it didn't quite. Well, I mean, it's the same. But God, I wish it had. It's the same issue that we always hit, I think, in Hollywood, which is one movie comes out. It's a tremendous success. And whatever group it's appealing to women, people of color, whatever. It's like, oh, my God, we need to make more of these movies. And and then for about a year. They, you know, things are getting greenlit and then it just all goes back to normal again. Like, you know, I I remember like the shock and awe that women would go to see Sex in the City the same way that and and, excuse the generalization, but like dudes would go see Star Wars. Right. And it's like, whoa, what? Or, you know, the way that, you know, uh, the way that, you know, black women showed up for girls trip. And, and, you know, it's like and there is this like excitement of like, oh, my gosh, like wow, if we make movies for different audiences, we might engage different audiences. And it just always kind of fades away. And we have to get another shot in the arm before you do it. And I think the only movies that don't go away are the movies that make literally like hundreds of millions of dollars on each go around. It's like, if it's a superhero movie, you got it. We'll make more of those. But it's really coming hard to keep a trend going because it inevitably like it just peters out or people get so excited about it. And if they all aren't a success then they all get kind of jettisoned. It's it's weird. 
Yeah, that's why I really appreciate, you know, here in LA, we have this local mural artist. His name is Hector Ponce. And he has, if you're in Hollywood, you've probably seen his work before. He did that mural that's Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, Elvis and Marilyn Monroe. Have you seen that one? Oh, no, I haven't. That's amazing. Oh, he he also did the one that's like the Beatles, the giant mural of the Beatles uh-huh. on the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's him. That's oh, okay. him. And he also did the Stand and Deliver mural, which is like um, Wilshire and Alvarado here. It's a four-story mural that's Edward James almost with his arm around Jaime Escolante. Oh, I love it. And that. I love it. It is still here today and it is giant. And I, But I appreciate that Hector Ponce was like elevating this movie to the level of iconography. Because I, I think it deserves it. It, you know, we've been talking a lot about the message underneath it, but I want to say that this movie is hilarious. Oh yeah, in that this movie makes me so tense when they sit down to retake the test again. That like ending, you're watching people oh. make graphs, and I'm like losing my mind. And, I'm and they, so scared in a hot room. Like that is a final fight scene from Rocky. I was on the edge of my chair. I almost wanted to fast forward it because it was uncomfortable, like sitting in it. You know, and I was like, <laughs> wow, that. To, to feel that in a math movie uh, and you don't know how they're going to do. You really don't know. Uh, you know, you assume it's going to work out, but I, there was a moment of doubt. And I love that I was able to even have that moment of doubt. And and uh, because you have movies that are and like Rocky, too, that are like, yeah, it's it's kind of a draw, but it's not. You know, it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love that. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Amy, I know that you had a chance to actually talk to Lou Diamond Phillips. I'm so upset that I didn't get a chance to tell him how I wore uh, his shirts uh, the way he presented them in this film and talk to him about how much of a giant fan I am of him, but I know you are also a giant fan of Lou. Oh, yeah, I was swooning. I was swooning, but I managed to keep it together. Um, well, let's uh, let's hear what you guys had to talk about. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump in with uh, maybe a, a compliment that might make you brag a little bit, if that's OK. Uh, sure. Well, you once heard from none other than the great actor Gregory Peck that you reminded him of one of my favorite actors, Anthony Quinn. That is one of the greatest compliments I have ever received. Uh, and and uh I was doing a, a film called Ambition, uh, which uh, I actually wrote. I wrote the screenplay for it, but I did not direct it. And uh, the lovely Cecilia Peck um, was my love interest in that film. And uh, obviously, you know, the, her father is the great Gregory Peck. So uh, we had we had a meal at, uh, at his home, Beverly Hills, one night. And uh, 
you know, we were sitting on his back porch uh, overlooking this absolutely stunning, you know, backyard that was more like a park. Uh, and and uh, he, he he literally said, you know, Lou, you, you put me in mind of my good friend, Tony Quinn. And I literally, I was all I could do to you know, start crying um, <laughs> because quite honestly, I mean, being, being of mixed heritage, being, you know, multi-ethnic and multi-racial, uh, you know, I've represented a number of uh, communities throughout, you know, throughout my career. I mean, almost obviously, you know, starting with Mexican-American, with La Banda and Santa Deliver, but, you know, then a number of Native American nations. So uh, I've been very, very fortunate because I am such a uh, an amorphous, you know, face and background myself, uh, I've, I've been able to fit into a lot of communities and hopefully represent them with, you know, with some pride and respect. Uh, and, but to be compared to, to Anthony Quinn, who exactly the same sort of thing, you know, had played, you know, obviously Latinos, but, but, you know, also Native Americans and Greek and, you know, and, and Inuit like I did as well, where, you know, I, I played an Inuit, uh, uh, and the son of, of the great Toshiro Mifune. So, you know, our our cultural pastiche, our quilt, if you will, has been uh, very uh, varied over the years. And, and I, I really felt as if, you know, that sort of prototypical ambassador to the world was Anthony Quinn. And, uh, you know, for, for somebody as great as Gregory Peck to, to make note of that and say that I was following in his footsteps uh, meant a lot to me. I love that. And I love how that kind of fits into... Your story as an actor, like I was reading that when you were first auditioning in Dallas, that you felt like you had to keep a, a switchblade and a red bandana in your car for auditions because that's what the roles were. Uh, yeah, pretty much punks, street thugs, you know, <laughs> uh, and and uh, I kind of had the market cornered, which was fabulous. Uh, there, number one, the, the talent pool was fairly limited, you know. Uh, I mean, Dallas, Fort Worth together, and then I lived in Arlington and went to school at the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, did a lot of theater work in Fort Worth, but uh, you know, there weren't that many professional actors to begin with. Uh, and then you can reduce that percentage by the amount of ethnic actors there were. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, I was able to uh, climb to, to sort of the top of that list uh, fairly quickly because I was a type, you know, and, and early on in your career, you're going to be playing types until your talent uh, allows you to break out and to, to expand and to, uh, you know, to, to bring more to the table. Well, yeah. And you were still in Texas, I heard, when you got cast as Richie Valens and La Bamba. So from then on, like, what was the process like to to be cast and stand and deliver? Were they just like, oh, we love you from La Bamba. You're automatically in this film or what happened? Uh, and that's funny. Yeah, get ready because it's a long story. <laughs> it is not easy. Uh, yes, I, I was cast for La Bamba uh, out of Dallas, Texas. Um, they did a national talent search. Uh, they had been casting for a while in New York and Los Angeles. And um, the writer-director, Luis Valdez, uh, did not yet have what he wanted, uh, what he was looking for. So uh, it was actually his brother, uh, Danny Valdez, who was the associate producer and uh, ended up playing uh, the uncle in, in the movie, uh, which is interesting because it was Danny who had approached the Valenzuela family in the beginning. He's the one who got the rights to the story from the family because Danny had been the lead in Zoot Suit. He had been the lead in, I think it was Boulevard Nights that his brother also uh, wrote. 
And he had originally gotten Richie's story for himself, but then he aged out of it. It took it took too many years to, to get it to the screen. So uh, it was actually Danny's suggestion to go to Texas. And Junie Lowry, uh, casting director, incidentally, also the casting director for Longmire, uh, and Phyllis Barza, the associate producer, went to Texas and literally, you know, uh, a day apiece in Dallas, San Antonio, and I think Houston. Uh, and they saw me in Dallas. The funny thing was, is that uh, my agent's assistant got the information wrong, and I thought I was going to go do a musical audition for uh, a theater piece based on Frankie Valley. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she entirely got that, you know, got that a little uh, mixed up. Um, so, you know, I land La Bamba. It's wonderful. Uh, I, I'm so proud of the film. Uh, and then I don't get another job for almost eight months, something like that. You know, uh, I, mean, I mean, here I was the lead in this, in this Hollywood film. Uh, but it was, you know, I'm an unknown. It's about an obscure Mexican, Mexican American, you know, uh, a rock star who was a footnote in Buddy Holly's, you know, story. Um, and, and so people weren't banging down my doors. I was now in Hollywood. I now had, uh, you know, a Hollywood agent. Uh, but you know, I just, I just couldn't land another gig and I was running out of money. I, I literally, you know, got paid scale for La Lamba. So I might've made, you know, six thousand dollars total oh, uh, i gave half of that to my mother you know and the rest <laughs> went to be splitting rent with uh, three other roommates you know uh so uh by by the time december rolled around i uh we we filmed in uh gosh june and july whatever uh and and so six months go by uh and I, i'm almost out of money uh and i haven't gotten another gig uh, and La Bamba's not scheduled to come out uh, until July of the following year in 87. So I finally get an audition uh, for uh, this television show called Crime Story. Uh, it turns out I'm too young for the character. But Bonnie Timmerman, who cast that show, also cast Miami Vice. So uh, I didn't get the, the crime story thing, but next thing you know, there's a phone call. It's like, Hey, does he want to do Miami Vice? And I'm like, do I, why do I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, out of the blue comes this episode of Miami Vice. Uh, I make almost as much money on the one episode as I did the entire movie of La Lamba, you know, and, and in that episode, which is called red tape, um, Viggo Mortensen plays my partner who gets killed in the first five minutes. And Annette Benning is the girlfriend of the bad guy. Whoa. So, uh, just, yeah, man, just, just absolutely historic. So, um, I have one scene with Edward James almost. Now, Eddie had done zoot suit with the Valdez brothers, with Luis Valdez and Danny Valdez. Uh, and, and, and they had taken it to Broadway. So he, 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 uh, was good friends you know, with, uh, with the writer director, Luis, uh, as a matter of fact, Eddie was supposed to do a cameo in La Bamba, uh, as, uh, Isa Morales, father, Bob Morales, you know, the, uh, the Richie's brother, uh, they had different fathers. So, uh, Eddie couldn't do it because of the, the Miami vice shooting schedule, Luis ended up doing it. But uh, as a result, uh, Eddie was very, very familiar with the film and he knew that I was the lead. You know, and now we're filming this Miami Vice episode in January, okay, of uh, 87. So uh, we do one scene together, 
And then Eddie looks at me and goes, what are you doing next month? And I said, uh, uh, nothing. I'll, I'll be in LA. You want to have lunch? <laughs> so he, he writes down a number. He gives me the number and he says, call this number. Uh, I'm doing a movie next month. Uh, uh, it's, it's very important film. Uh, uh, you, you should be in it. Uh, so I said, great. And sure enough, I get back to LA. I call the number he gave me. It's Ramon Menendez, the director of Stand and Deliver. I go in and I meet he and Tom Muska. Uh, and, and that's how I ended up in the movie. I mean, when you get that many young unknowns, especially people who haven't had any experience before on a set, when there's that whole range, what is that set like? I mean, does it ever get as loud and fun, as chaotic as the kids in the classroom? You know, everybody was very uh, incredibly professional. And, and and instead of, you know, a lack of experience resulting in a lot of rowdiness, <laughs> uh, I think it resulted in, in, in fear and uh, intimidation. <laughs> um, but but it, it really was... Eddie Olmos, uh, who became the heart and the soul of the entire piece. I mean, Ramon Menendez uh, is a fantastic director, and Tom Muska, uh, the script they wrote together was absolutely fantastic. But it was Eddie that galvanized everyone. Uh, he insisted on a week of rehearsals. So um, it, it was pretty fantastic. It was almost like a theater piece in that respect, where, you know, if anybody was nervous or if they were, you know, all of that, they um, were able to relax and to become comfortable with each other and to have that sort of, you know, chemistry and that bond that you actually see on the screen. That rehearsal period uh, not only helped to hone the script, but made other things very, very clear. Uh, they, they were having a very hard time casting the uh, 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 the gang leader, you know, Tuco. Mm-hmm. And, and um, uh, Danny Villarreal was a production assistant. And he was assigned to me because I didn't, you know, I'm, I grew up in Texas, man. I didn't know what a cholo was. You know, that, that's very much a, a California kind of L.A., you know, phenomenon. Uh, and and so I didn't know anything about it. So I, I needed to do my research. And I basically went on ride arounds with Danny, you know, uh, uh, for a week or two, uh, you know, just just checking out the places in East L.A. and, and uh, learning the life and you know, uh, kind of soaking up the, the experience. Um, and it was, you know, literally in, in one uh, of the rehearsals where uh, one of the other production assistants was, was reading the dialogue in the rehearsal when Eddie looked over at Danny and, and, and said, give him a script, give him a script, let, 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 him read the, let him read the lines. And, you know, once again, it was Eddie's insight, you know, into casting into into finding the right personalities to go into those roles that you know resulted in Danny Villarreal be, you know getting into the movie basically playing a game leader which is what he had been you know uh, 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 earlier on in life before he got out of that life so it, it, it brought such a veracity to to the role and uh, not to mention the fact that it opened up the door you know there was a lot of improv there was a lot of improv that had an effect on the script and an easiness uh with the characters uh, um, where we got to know them inside and out uh, that, that allowed us to, add, you know, add blip, you know, during, during takes uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really great little moments in the movie that, that, you know, happened right there on the spot between Eddie and I. Uh, I mean, to be able to do that, like what was one of those things that you feel like you absorbed in those ride arounds and in that, in that kind of like study of the community that you felt really hit to the core and helped you create Angel? It's, it's understanding and it's empathy. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, the actor's process 
a lot of times when uh, you are creating fictional characters, you sort of have to depend on, you know, um, uh, the externals, you know, where, where does this person live? What are, what are they dressed like? What's the period? What's, what's the history behind all of this? And, and that was very much, you know, uh, my process in getting to know, you know, what a cholo was, who angel was, you know, uh, they, they certainly dress differently than I dress and, you know, uh, uh, and it's that attitude. It's, you know, getting to meet these guys and seeing how they walk and how they carry themselves, you know, and, and, and then understanding, their lives, you know, and, 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 uh, absorbing that. I mean, a lot of the acting is subjugating your own ego to the characters and, and, uh, uh, seeing the world through their eyes. And that's, and that's the process, uh, you know, of, uh, especially if you're theater trained, you know, and, and in this case, you know, once again, we had, you know, real life people. And I was just following this up, you know, after having done the research, you know, on Richie, uh, which, which was very much there. It was right in front of me. I could see his face. I could hear his voice. There was a little bit of film on him. Uh, uh, but in this respect, Angel was a uh, composite of a number of uh, Jaime Escalante's students. Uh, there wasn't one Angel that this character was based on. So uh, it, was, it was really uh, uh, being able to absorb as much information uh, in as much time as I had. You have this amazing year when Stand and Deliver comes out. I mean, you you win an indie spirit. You get nominated for an, a Golden Globe. What was that like for you and, and the whole rest of the cast? I was picturing you guys just like hanging out and going to all of these different parties together. But what was it like? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't go to quite so many parties. Um, although, I mean, for me, it was so bizarre, man. And I, and I think. To a certain extent, uh, it was a double-edged sword for me because um, I was literally following up one underdog success. La Bamba becomes this huge success. It comes out of nowhere, uh, you know, uh, does great box office, has a number one hit, you know, on MTV and on the radio. You know, it just it's just this massive success story. And then this little movie, Stand and Deliver, that, you know, we, we did for love, you know, uh, I made less on that than I made on La Bamba. And, you know, it was, it was made for a million dollars originally for PBS. You know, I remember I went to the Mill Valley Film Festival with Eddie and that's where Warner Brothers picked it up. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden here I go again with another uh, success Cinderella story uh, that, that blows up and, and results not only in both me and Eddie winning and, and seven uh, Independent Spirit Awards, Eddie and I are both nominated for the Golden Globe. Um, uh, I I should have done more to 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 be quite honest to uh, lobby for the uh, Oscar nomination, which Eddie did get. Um, you know, I think I should. I, I I trusted the system where I should have. You know, I should have uh, beat the drum a little bit more. But you know, I was young and I I didn't know and I didn't know how it all worked. Uh, but even so, this was this was a massive success and and. You know, for a minute there, I, I think I got uh, uh, seduced into believing that it would always be that way, you know. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that, I mean, literally the film that I did right after Stand and Deliver was Young Guns. So, <laughs> so you know, man, I, you know, I, I just I hit I hit the triple crown, you know, <laughs> within two years of being in Hollywood, uh, um, you know, after almost running out of money and moving back to Texas. So, um it really, it really was part of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the the uh, 
the coming out party of Lou Diamond Phillips, you know, there in, in, in Hollywood. And, and it set me up, you know, for the for the rest of my life, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that Stand and Deliver, I mean, as popular as it continues to be, as much as people still show it, you know, in schools for kids. I'm imagining this is one of those movies that if you walk down the street, people will holler something at you about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times, man, uh, it's it, it depends on where I'm at. Uh, if I'm in the South, it's a lot of, you know, younger, the Jobbits, Navajo, you know, I hear, you know, I mean, a lot of times it's, you know, you get that every once in a while I get Angel, Angel, you know, so it's body decomposing in my locker, you know, uh, uh, so uh, what I mostly get as far as recognition for that film comes from teachers. And that means a lot because uh, the film inspired them as teenagers to to follow in the footsteps of Jaime Escalante. Uh, it, it spoke to them, you know, uh, not only uh, the part of them that wanted to be educators, but the part of them that wanted to make a difference. And it's interesting that, uh, I mean, one of the other things that I'm incredibly proud of is that the film not only holds up as a movie 30 years later, it um, it is so relevant today to the struggle Mm-hmm. that we're going through in, in respect for education, in support for teachers. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe more so than any time in the last couple of decades, I really think our school system is under attack. And, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we have people who are looking to undermine it. We have people who are not supporting public education uh, uh, and public school and, and allowing um, opportunity and, and accessibility uh, and inclusion you know, across the nation. And, and here we are 30 years later, still talking about this. Uh, and, and so I, I feel that the film has a lot of relevance. Okay. I'm going to ask you kind of a ridiculous question, if you don't mind. Mm. No ridiculous <laughs> questions are all good. <laughs> well, I heard that in addition to being a fantastic actor, you're also a very good poker player. And I was wondering, like, does, does being great at poker playing involve math? Does it involve, yes. One hundred percent. That's not a ridiculous question at all. Seriously, you are you are calculating your odds. I mean, you know, you can't beat luck, but uh, uh, you're sitting there and you're playing with a fifty-two card deck, and you know you you've got you know uh, a draw to an inside straight. You're trying to figure out, you know, if there are nine players at the table, each has two, and there's already three cards out on the table. You're going. What are the chances I'm going to hit? my inside eight, you know, uh, uh, that's going to fill this, assuming that somebody else doesn't already have an eight. So you have four out of 52, which is, you know, very, very low odds, you know? (laughs) So you, you, you calculate these things in your head and and you, uh, uh, and then you go off of probabilities, you know, and possibilities and, and decide whether or not, you know, you're going to, to chase that. Uh, uh, or, you know, and, and then the other aspect comes in. It's like, can I bluff? Can I bluff people <laughs> into thinking that I've already got the best hand? So, you know, <gasps> yeah, no, a hundred percent, which is interesting. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's why you see a lot of very smart poker players, you know, because they're sitting there literally computing odds in their head as they're watching the cards fall. Well, Lou, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a fun conversation. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And, and uh, uh, have fun, man. You obviously are going to be watching some great films coming up. So uh, uh, I, uh, I envy you your journey. Have fun with it.
you know, you were saying before that you were nervous about revisiting it and feeling like, oh, is this cloying? Is this cliche? I, I had yeah, the same. I thought it might be like health food, you know, a bunch of carob or something. I totally agree. And as I pressed play, I was like, oh, I hope we picked the right one because we're not vetting these more than the way that you and I are like, oh, I think that would be an interesting one to talk about. And we're watching them together. And I think that that's a good way to kind of do it um, because we may hit some bummers along the way. But were there any bad reviews? You know, there was. There was by a man that we love very deeply. His name is Roger Ebert. Oh, interesting. <laughs> All right. Let, what do you got? Roger Ebert had issues. Here we go. <clears throat> there were moments in Stand and Deliver that moved me very deeply. And other moments so artificial and contrived that I wanted to edit them out right then and there. Ebert says that it lacks the full emotional power it really should have. He said it wasn't that interesting in the high school romance. He said that that part was just simply marking time. He says that the Edward Olmos performance takes a lot of chances. He's so mannered in his stooped shuffle and his sideways manner of expressing himself that perhaps he should have toned it down once he'd made his point. But what Ebert really has an issue with is the testing sequences, especially the really? question of why do the kids all make the same mistakes? He says, because we have been through the movie and their experience with the kids, we know they were not cheating. But the ETS authorities cannot be blamed for their suspicions. What the screenplay needed, I think, was at least one speech in simple, clear dialogue explaining what I assumed to be true. The kids all made the same mistake because their teacher made that mistake in teaching them. There's a scene in the movie that seems to suggest this possibility. The teacher comes up with an assertion that everyone in the classroom tells him is wrong, but he won't back down. However, that scene ends without making it clear whether the teacher was wrong, and the later scene never explains the similar wrong answers. This adds unnecessary cloudiness to no purpose. Ooh, I disagree. First of all, not that you're, this is not you, I'm arguing with Ebert, who I do really enjoy. I think the reason why he's cloudy is incredibly clear. He is literally on the verge of a heart attack. He is like, that's earlier in the day. And at the evening, he has this heart attack. So in my mind, I'm seeing him not on his game. And that more, that's why I oh, read that sequence. Those heart scenes, attack truther. I hadn't considered that. Well, because it's like you see these two scenes back to back. And it seems like we never see him in the ESL class. It just seems like what is going on in his life in this day? And it's like, oh, he's clearly... His body is off, right? It's not like he's teaching him the wrong thing. Like, he's not right. Uh, you know, he has this heart attack, which in real life wasn't a heart attack. It was like a gallbladder issue. But that's how I saw it. But what I love about this movie, and I want to hear your thought too, is like, I like that the underlying thought is, and something that Jaime brings up, chemo brings up, uh, is like, you're always going to be judged on your name, where you're from and what you're doing. And, but the only thing you can't be judged on is the quality of your math, right? And that's what the end of it is. They are judging the quality of their math. They, they assume that they're cheating. And because they can't look at it, and who knows at this point what the situation was. We now know that, yes, they all, that nine of them cheated on one question. Um, but to have forced that answer makes this movie less interesting to me because it was an unknown. They don't know what it was, right? And and Andy Garcia is not wrong. He's not picking on them. It's the situation that they're all in. And there's something about being in the moment that, yes, we all want clarity. We all want that clean cut answer. It was because X, Y, and Z. And I thought the same thing. Like, oh, is it something that he taught them wrong and he could show them? But life isn't like that. Life doesn't have that, here's a bow on it. Here's the thing. This is what really happened. What happened was they were forced to retake it and they all had to. And 
did they do worse, better, same? Looks like the same, but probably some a little bit worse than others. Like it, like to me, that's what makes this movie again a better than Hollywood film. Which brings us to the question of season two. Mm. If this film was selected to be on our rocket ship into space, what would the aliens think about it? And by the way, if it was selected to be on this rocket ship from space, a good deal of Jaime Escalante's real life students went on to careers in the, the Jet Propulsion Library here in uh, California. So there's a chance they could build the rocket that put their movie into space. I mean, I would like to think that this movie would be as inspirational if I was an alien. I mean, if you're an alien, you still have to learn things. You have to learn your own type of speech and your own way of building rockets. And I would like to think that this is a movie that I find to be so relatable. I, I imagine this movie works like gangbusters anywhere it's played, you know? And with that in mind, I think this movie is a really fair representation of life on Earth and of movies that are crowd-pleasing and fun and enjoyable and smart and dead-on about what they're trying to say. You know, I feel like this movie is a really strong heavy hitter in every single quadrant, you know, from amusing to intellectual, the way that Jaime Escalante, I suppose, was as a teacher himself. And so I would be proud if the aliens watch this movie. Part of me believes that, you know, the aliens should see a multitude of school films to see the differences of schools, right? This is nothing like the Mean Girls School. This is nothing like uh, you know, schools that you might even see like on those movies I mentioned earlier, like Lean on Me or Dangerous Minds. So I, I do believe that there isn't one school, right? There might be one kind of court case. There may be one type of uh, maybe, let's say, like Vietnam film or, you know, that's probably could be argued. But school really is a personality. And, you know, the way that they say like, oh, well, New York is the character. The school is the character. So we are embracing this school and i haven't seen this school in other movies i've seen you know versions of the mean girl school but this is a very unique school so i'm i agree with everything that you say as it as a crowd pleaser and i think the fact that it's based on a true story and is potentially 90 percent uh true is really exciting and you know we don't have enough movies about people who are fair like honestly like i mean in the sense of like these are not all geniuses. They're not the best in their field. These kids are still making mistakes the day before they take the test. They're making mistakes the day they make the test. Your teacher's not perfect. Like, I like the anti-Goodwill hunting. I like the that story. Yeah, it's like they are... Yeah, it's the movie equivalent of a sloppy fist fight. Yeah, it's like that's what it is. That's what you will have. It's not going to be perfectly choreographed. We're not finding these one in a million people because this story is basically saying anyone can do it if given the proper attention and proper commitment, right? And it takes two on that side. You, you can have one person giving the proper attention and nobody else giving the commitment, but you need both to kind of come to play. And I, I think that, uh, I don't know, long-winded answer is I, I believe right now, based on the, the, the first two films, this one definitely, uh, maybe even slightly edges uh, Mean Girls if I'm putting them in some sort of ranking. But yes, aliens should watch this film. I mean, I would say though, when, it, when we're getting ready to make the hard, hard, hard choices, which will come, despite like my love for this movie, there aren't that many shots on a technical level that really pop out to me mm -hmm. as like, haha. I think the camera is very great at following Jaime around. Yes. I think he controls the space very well. It feels it feels um, a bit more theatrical, like a play to me and watching a man dominate a room the way that he yes. does. 
And I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, I'm imagining that Ramon Menendez was so busy keeping a giant classroom of students together, you know, getting those amazing performances out of people that it, it does suffer a little bit on like the technical level in terms of like its look and style. You know, when I think about the shots, I mean, the shots that really pop out to me, you know, the the way that Jaime frames his face with his fingers when he says finger man mm. or the way that Lou Diamond Phillips looks when he pops out of the car as he's heckling the police officer. And it has that kind of swoony, passionate, he's angry, he's hot headed, he's feeling all of these emotions and he needs to feel like he has some sort of power in that moment. I think the camera does a great job in those scenes. And it did get nominated for cinematography for Indie Spirits. It lost. But yeah, I, I'd be hard for us to say that this movie makes every amazing technical choice. Uh I don't know how you feel about the ending jam, for example. I love that ending jam. I mean, I love all that funky music. I will say that... Um, Look, it's hard to make a classroom look real. It's also an oppressive environment. And I think they do a really good job of, you know, look, this is a low budget indie film. They do a great job of making the film feel full without seeing a shitload of students all throughout. Like you are, you're feeling an energy there and you're really living with these people. And, and, you know, when you think back at it, you're like, oh, this is an indie movie. This is low budget, small locations, you know, tight little places. Um, So there's an authenticity to it. But yes, there isn't a showiness to it. But by the fact that it didn't feel claustrophobic in that environment, I believe the cinematography works. Like I didn't feel. Yeah, like, that's fair because actually, now here. that I'm thinking about it, like if there was a shot where the camera zoomed through a projector, the film would suddenly feel phony. Right. And that the film doesn't feel phony is part of its charm. So the film is the overhead projecting of directing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's almost like the the cinematography has to be that that deceptively simple, I suppose. Well, Amy, next week we're going to talk about a movie that I've never seen. We're opening up the AFI list to uh, a more worldly point of view uh, as we go into 400 Blows. Uh, Never have seen this movie. Heard a lot about it. So excited. Ooh, get ready to count them blows, baby. And if you're like me uh, and you haven't seen it, here's a little taste. And you may want to take out your Google Translator to, uh, to understand exactly what's going on, unless you speak French. Et puis je me suis aperçu que ma mère, elle m'aimait pas tellement, elle me disputait toujours, et puis, et puis pour rien, les petites affaires insignifiantes. Et puis euh, avec ma grand-mère aussi, elle s'est disputée une fois. Et j'ai, là, j'ai su qu'elle avait voulu me faire avorter. Et puis si je suis née, c'était grâce à ma grand-mère. Ta mère, ta mère, qu'est-ce qu'elle a encore Elle est morte. Dans la mesure où on travaille tous les deux, vous savez ce que c'est. Oui, je suis père de famille, moi aussi. Faut reconnaître que parfois, on ne s'y retrouve pas très bien. Mais si seulement il avait voulu se confier à nous. All right, Amy, I'm excited for uh, 400 Blows next week. I know, man. This is fun. I'm excited that we get to be this eclectic. Yeah, me too. I was actually sitting down and felt so free pressing play on this film. It felt like, oh, we're getting to control a little bit here and explore places that it wouldn't normally uh, go to. Uh, so uh, Yeah, we have not heard funky, funky open and music like that on anything in the AFI list. I'm ready. I'm ready. 
Um, all right. So we will uh, we'll check in with you next week. Bye for now. Bye.